Welcome to Sound and Vision. Conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors, who make amazing acrylic and oil paint, watercolors, and painting mediums. Made in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden sets the standard for art materials. You can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum has an incredible array of roasted coffee beans that you can order and have delivered to your door. They even have a subscription service of curated blends that you can order by visiting their website fulcrumcoffee.com. Sound and Vision listeners can get 20% off their order by adding the code Alfred Studio at checkout. Check out Fulcrum for some amazing coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Andrew Ross received his BFA from the Cooper Union in 2011, where he was awarded the Gelman Trust Award for Excellence in Sculpture. He attended Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in 2011, and he's been a resident and fellow of programs including the Triangle Arts Association, the Drawing Center's Open Sessions, the LMCC Swing Space, the Macedonia Institute, the Bruce High Quality Foundation, and he's currently the awardee of the Two Trees Curatorial Space Subsidy Program. Andrew's exhibited in group exhibitions at the Hassel Museum, the Drawing Center, the Studio Museum in Harlem, Artist Space, the Center for Humanities at SUNY, White Columns, and Green Neftali. He's staged solo exhibitions at Signal in Brooklyn, American Medium in New York, Clima Gallery in Milan, and False Flag in Long Island City. Andrew's work has been reviewed in Art Forum, Art in America, Cultured, Flash Art, Moose, and the Brooklyn Rail. I spoke with Andrew about Florida Roots, the Cooper Union, diversity of material approach, performative music, sculpture, painting, and much more. Here's our conversation. How was your day? What did you do today? Today was my last day teaching a summer pre-college program at Cooper Union for high school students. Nice. So you're you're done. Yeah. For a few yeah, minutes. I'm done. Done teaching for about two and a half weeks, and then I'm gonna teach my first college level class at VCU. VCU. Yeah. Nice. Now VCU is a, if I'm not mistaken, is is a real sculpture. Like it's a, supposedly some good sculpture stuff has come out of that place. That's what I hear, and I'm familiar with some of the teachers. Um, I know Michael Jones McKean who works there, um, but I'm actually going to be teaching in the painting program which I think people are surprised by. Um, but I think that's just, it's really just because the painting program has this annual um, visiting professor job. Yeah, but I'll be teaching graduate seminar. So I think it can really be whatever I and the students make it 
you I'll know, it'll just be this, about this coming semester. What are you going to do it on? Do you have an idea? Well, I do have an idea, and I haven't really discussed it with the school much yet, but I think I kind of want it to be about technology, but looking at technology not as tools or anything about progress, but about the way it makes us look at things differently. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, Yeah, I want to do some research into, you know, I've been reading a lot of film theory and um, I was just thinking about how, you know, it's so clear how the technology influence uh, the works as, you know, as they grow in tandem. And, you know, I think it's, it, it can be pretty clear with, uh, a lot of artworks too, but, you know, it's not discussed quite as much. Isn't it funny? It's like a seismic shift in the way we see and digest everything when it comes to imagery, but, totally. but it's not, it's almost like the elephant in the room. Yeah. Yeah, there's a... Um, I've actually haven't read the whole book yet. I just read the first few chapters of this book by David Jocelyn called Feedback mm-hmm. um, that is about television and uh, its relation to art. And the first chapter is just um, about figure-ground relationships and kind of metaphorically relating it to the evolution of television and, you know, how that plays into reality TV being sort of like a new figure ground relationship where there's this possibility that you can be on TV to uh, social media. And I, whenever I teach drawing, I, I make my students read that because I think it's like a compelling argument that figure ground relationships are can be political and can be, you know, more than just a visual discussion. And, um, so that's definitely a text I'm going to go into, but also, yeah, you know, relates to what we were just talking about. It sounds like a good class. Maybe I can audit it. Yeah. (laughs) Can I sit in? Can I zoom in? That'd be cool. (laughs) Yeah. I'm teaching a seminar this semester and then I'm also, the second class is uh, digital painting. So it'll be a nice kind of like, you know, back and forth to totally have you taught digital painting before yeah i actually started that class yeah it's like that's awesome yeah because uh the new media program there is just like crushing it i mean they did you know the energy is like off the hook and so i just we had this idea to start a um a class where it's more you know painting like art based than not that we're not against you know anime or whatever comics or you know uh what is it a background like design like a lot of students want to do like digital paintings for like the backgrounds of like stuff or like film and video so mm-hmm. it's kind of like that's all cool but also like bringing it into the fine art world too and thinking about how you can critique or look at that stuff with a different eye so yeah it's pretty fun yeah it'll be really interesting in a few years when art schools don't frown on that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see. I think it's transitioning. I mean, mm-hmm. in certain places. 
obviously some schools are going to be a little more receptive and some are going to push back but you know it's undeniable i mean you know people are using it just like any other tool so it's a, another elephant in the room all right well let's go into you let's uh, <laughs> um where'd you grow up i'm from south florida um born in miami and grew up in boca raton where many people know it as a retirement community of course um <laughs> yeah and i moved to new york in 2007 uh to attend cooper union and yeah i've been here ever since yeah so growing up in florida i mean you know my my experiences in florida have always been nice I've always loved it. And um, from Miami to, you know, the University of Florida, like doing different things in different areas, parts of the state. When I was young, I went down there a couple of times. I think we went to like an alligator farm or something. <laughs> we did like weird vacations. But um, I love it. But I mean, how was it growing up? Like Florida's for a lot of people, just the destination. You know, you go there, you get out. How was it, you know, the whole time growing up there? Yeah, I love Florida now when I go visit, but I hated it when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it really feels like an in-between space. Um, I think a lot of the best freaks come from Florida. I think a lot of good music comes out of Florida. A lot of good artists, except for the fact that there are lots of art schools, so they get trained a little too early. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think we get really creative thinkers because it just feels like nothing's real in Florida and it opens up a lot of possibility. Um, but yeah, also Florida is just, you know, being from the West Palm area, it's known as kind of the more progressive area, but it also really isn't very progressive and you know i felt i feel like i i became really introverted because florida was so you know it was like a police state i just felt like you're being watched everywhere yeah down there it's a it's a uh, it feels like it could be a a a, a strange dynamic you know what I mean? Because it's funny because like thinking about a transient place or a place where people are coming from other places and sort of stuff. I mean, New York is like that too, but New York, it's almost like the identity of it is so New York that you kind of have to like adapt to it or something, or it overtakes whatever, wherever you're coming from or whatever you're doing. It's, it's bigger than all that. In Florida, I feel like maybe that's, you know, it's maybe it's not quite the same. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I think it's it's a different kind of diversity and really it's just that Florida's a lot of facades um, even the art you see down there is more about facade, you know You mean like the surface? Like, 
Yeah, more about yeah. surface. Um, yeah, the sculptures are all extruded, flat shapes. Um, very graphic. But there's a huge Caribbean uh, culture in Florida, which is where my my mother's side of the family uh, is from. And, you know, there's a lot of really interesting things going on with that or, you know, through my relationship to that, Florida was, you know, pretty, pretty exciting, pretty interesting. And as I get older, um, yeah, I like to go down more, go to little Haiti and, um, you know, experience that culture. What came first in the household culture wise, music or art? Well, my mom only listened to the same two or three albums over and over again. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, maybe more than albums. It was more artists. Like, I know all the words to every Sade song. Oh, I and, know a bunch of Sade, too. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's great. Every Bob record. Marley song. I loved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was really excited when I first heard the, um, um, What's his name? He died not too long ago. The rapper who always wore a mask. Uh, MF Doom. MF Doom. He has a mixtape called Sade Villain. Oh, um, I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. And it's all mixes of Sade songs. When I first heard about that, that was really exciting because I knew, kind of knew all the words already. Yeah, right. Her music is so good. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And such a beautiful human like it's it's crazy it's like how yeah i i spent a long time infatuated with sade <laughs> i've painted her and done collages of her oh really <laughs> yeah but my mom listened to sade and uh so i had that experience too not the same where it was the same too but sade got so much airplay and uh and anita baker so i can like same, sing actually. Rapture, like I can sing that stuff because in the car it was on a cassette that played all the time, and my dad had like Marvin Gaye and like a lot of Motown stuff, mm. so it was just on repeat all the time, you know, in my head. And I think it kind of like gets music-wise because you know I love music. I feel like those artists are like the goat; they become the core that everything sprouts out of in a way. Yeah, you know, for me, I, I it's like a journey of self discovery to hear those songs again and, and realize that I do like them yeah. Cause before it was just like what my mom listened to and that's just what it was I didn't really think about it that much and I got most of my music tastes from my friends in middle school and high school one of which probably the main one I, I went to one of these magnet art high schools mm-hmm. and it was in West Palm Beach so I'd have to take a train from Boca Raton to West Palm. And so all the other kids that would commute, we'd hang out in the like 45 minute to an hour train ride. And so we'd meet all the other kids from the different parts of the school. And I became really good friends with the uh, musicians, specifically the strings people for some reason. (laughs) A lot of my friends were violinists. And um, I got a lot of my taste from them. And they they were listening to... 
like classic rock. Um, you know, I listened to a lot of Led Zeppelin, Grateful Dead, um, and probably most of all, I guess we call this folk music, I, it was Bob Dylan. Yeah. Listened to a lot of Bob Dylan. So it's pretty good. Pretty good mix. Yeah. So that's a lot of, you know, heavy hitters. Was there some totally. Indian underground stuff that you were into too? I mean, Florida yeah. has a big club sort of DJ slash like reggaeton. You know, like you're getting the, like you said, the Caribbean influence and then you're getting the DJ stuff. Yeah, well, part of me is trying to, to avoid this one uh, aspect of my life, which is that my older sister is a musician and that was like her entire life and still is. She's still a musician. And she does, I guess she calls it world music, which is not to not pigeonhole it but it's kind of soca influenced yeah and um yeah it's a little bit r&b it's a little bit soca and it's partially in french and creole and partially in english um i wouldn't say that i got my taste from her but i've got my exposure to a lot of different types of music from her and I would also be remiss if I did not shout out my friend Nick Klein, who is one of the best techno noise musicians around. He, his parents were dance, they were in the dance world. And they had a dance studio in Lake Worth, Florida called Klein Dance. And he would have music shows in the dance studios on weekends. Nice. And, um, he, him being like a serious musician who was on top of everything and still is, he would invite people from all over the country. They traveled down to Florida to do a set at Klein Dance. It would be, and it was back in the day. Like I don't even remember a lot of the the names of the bands or musicians. It was back in the day where it was a lot of uh, one person acts where they'd be doing some you know some sort of noise with like a loop pedal and like you know a bunch of different noise machines yeah um i remember seeing a guy like play a game boy nice um but nick klein himself did one of the most exciting musical performances i've ever seen uh, it was like hard to describe he was he it was mostly on a drum drum kit but uh running around around the room uh activating different pedals and stuff and i don't know kind of mind-blowing it sounds really good also i'll just i'll just talk about other uh florida music people my friend uh tommy coleman who's a great artist that is you know still active now uh he lived in jupiter florida which is more rural so he had a big backyard and he would called the venue that was his house the house and he'd also invite people from all over the country um saw a lot of great shows there i still listen to this band has this band that does not exist anymore because i think the member it was just two people the member one of the members was mormon and after high school he went on his mission and became you know devout and stopped doing the band the band was called Wales. Wales? Uh, yeah. Is there stuff out there you can check out? 
there's still a band camp because every once in a while I'll look nice. it up because I want to hear this one song. Right. Um, and it's really good. But th- it mm-hmm. seems like there's a lot of good floor. I mean, did that inspire you? Were you always kind of like leaning art and making art stuff? It definitely was, but I did not have a musical brain. I mean, it was inspiring because I saw so many people playing music without playing an instrument. Yeah. And I did have a brief moment where I tried to do that myself, but I don't, I will just wasn't in it. I, I couldn't do it. Um, I, when I got to college, I briefly had a band with my, my good friend, uh, Christopher Moore, who still makes music now, still doesn't know how to read music. He plays the saxophone in a kind of experimental way. Now, um, we had a band, it was called Elephant Deception. And uh, it was like, it was named that way because we were thinking about these like viral videos of elephants making paintings. And it was sort of like a statement like, that we we might make things that sound good, but we don't really know what we're doing. <laughs> and <laughs> That's pretty good. We were the elephant deception, but um, yeah, I right now late. I mean, lately, this is we're talking about way back, but you know, sometimes when I I think about how I want to use music, I want to collaborate with musicians more. I did do one video once a few years ago that showed at um, that showed in this group show called Politica- Politicizing Space, mm-hmm. curated by Charlotta Kotick and Will Corwin at uh, John Jay School of Law and the gallery there called Shiva Gallery, where I it was essentially like a little a mini documentary about my sister's friend who's a drummer. Who go who goes by the name E Cushionist and he he plays a drum machine while playing his regular drums mm-hmm. and it was sort of just simply like documenting him busking and watching a crowd accumulate. It was kind of a beautiful video because it was all about like avoiding the crowd like capturing them without without uh videotaping their faces and then so it was mostly it was just bodies moving and then and his face and he was a big showman so lots of expressive faces from yeah, him it sounds good i mean when did so you went to an arts high school you said right so is mm-hmm. that where the seed was planted of starting to make things? Yeah. Technically, I went to an arts middle school in high school, to be oh, honest. Oh, yeah, middle school. Wow, that's Yeah, early. yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's easier... That That's less of a weird thing to say for musicians, and uh, I think, you know, because a lot of musicians, you know, train from a very young age, like maybe they learn how to play piano, you know, at three or four, and get better throughout their lifetime and that's where my, that's how my sister was my sister started learning piano when she was very very young yeah and so you know her being older she went to the middle school of the arts first for vocal music and basically i just started 
doing art. I, I really think, you know, I don't know if this is me making it up, uh, this is revisionist history or, or whatnot, but I think my mom one day like asked me if I could do something artistic so she didn't have to drive to two different schools. <laughs> and so I started, I made a drawing portfolio and um, I was really good at copying things, you know? Yeah. So that'll get you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, yeah, uh, then, that was, that was your, your way in basically, or that got you started? Yeah, that got me started for sure. I was very haphazard, you know, I was never, maybe cause I, in a weird way, I didn't care about it at the beginning. I never tried to make anything pretty. And I think a lot of kids do that and they get hung up on that. You know, I see that as a teacher now. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, that's what gave, got me a lot of encouragement because I was depicting, you know, not the obvious parts of whatever still lives we were doing. And, and then in high school, you know, I was privileged to have access to facilities that I think are a little bit advanced for high school. You know, we had a sculpture shop. It wasn't like a wood shop. It was just like a room with a bunch of tables, but our professor, I mean, our, our teacher, his name was Mr. Griffin, um, he was a real bohemian weirdo. Like, he lived on a boat. and um, <laughs> Nice. That's, and, always, that's always intriguing as a kid. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <boat? laughs> and he used to be in, in the Navy. I think it was, he was, he was British. It might've been the British Navy. That falls and, in line with the boat thing. Yeah. And he was a welder in the Navy and he taught me how to weld. And, you know, so I got, that was where the sculpture really began. Cause maybe I just became obsessed that I, I had skills that, people didn't have it that age yeah i mean i didn't you know? learn that in high school because mm. you know works on paper eight and a half by 11 that was pretty much my <laughs> the medium we were given you know so that's pretty cool you get a jump start like using those kind of materials when you're that young is like fascinating you know it's it's pretty cool yeah yeah it's exciting so did that lead you to the i'm gonna go to art school was that like an easy choice it was in my mind, you know, I was a, I was definitely a, like a goody two shoes kid. Like I, I could have gotten into a lot of other schools. Not that that's like the difference, but, and you know, it was, I remember the mo the, not the moment, but the, the big change was I was like a big math and science kid. And I was like, I skipped grades and in math and stuff. And I was far enough ahead my senior year that I didn't have to take math if I didn't want to and when I decided not to so I could take another art class like that's what changed yeah. everything and um, and then you know I went to Cooper Union which back then was completely free and sort of the thought in my mind was if I get into Cooper then why not go to art school because it's free yeah, you know that makes it easy. Yeah. That's an easy decision. Is it not free anymore? I thought they kept it. They're working to make it free again, but it's like a long-term goal. And right now, it's half tuition for most for all students, and then most students get an additional scholarship. Yeah, 
but it's not guaranteed. Did the uh, the advancement of science and that part of it allure? Was there a lore there too, to the sort of academic side of things? Yeah, definitely. How is it? You um, know, it's funny because I know. I mean, I went to grad school with people who went to Cooper for undergrad, and how was it? Like, was it? I mean, it's difficult. I know because you don't go to multiple art schools necessarily. So I don't. It's like, how is it compared to anything else? Who knows? But like, how did you find it? I mean, I think it was really exciting. Um, I don't think, you know, again, like, it's weird because even as somebody who's trained in art at such a young age, I don't believe that it's really necessarily the best thing for people to um, train in art that young. And even, so, okay, Cooper doesn't really teach techniques that much. And so you're, you're trying to absorb concepts without hands-on experience and the hands-on experience is all on you. And I think that that's really hard because, you know, a lot of it, you know, in hindsight was going over my head. Right. And, it's really about how much, I don't know, we're, you know, we were all ambitious back then. Like, I think the people in my class, so it worked out well because we're all doing the best we could in the ways that we understood it. But, um, you know, I think that what came through the best for us was when our professors had some sort of idealism baked into their their practices yeah um and that was something that we could latch on to because we didn't really have the historical narratives to work with but um you know like i remember certain certain things like uh stick with me like i remember there was a seminar called Inter- ids interdisciplinary seminar that's run by doug ashford um, and he would invite artists and architects and all types of practitioners, art historians, to come and give a lecture. And we'd have to write a little essay about it after. And it was there was a Q&A. And the Q&A always got... It was always kids trying to find like a gotcha moment to <laughs> ensnare the right. speaker. But anyway... I, one of the things that I, one of the IDS seminars that I remember really well was this architect named Tony Shakar, and I think it really got to me because he was making work where he'd go to areas, industrial areas, where they would make uh, building materials, and he worked in areas where they made tires and where they made. Um, scaffolding and he would make kind of public housing out of those materials and that I remember being really poignant because like I got it it wasn't like theory that was confusing it was like there was an ideal there and it was making like real world changes but it was also that you know it had an aesthetic to it yeah um yeah so sort of clear purpose 
came mm-hmm. out of it, which was probably eye-opening in a way. Totally. Because a lot of stuff is purposefully... Um, there's uh, this idea that there's so much layered conceptual rigor that it, if it's clear, it's too digestible too quickly. It's not mm-hmm. nuanced enough or there's no layers of, you know... Yeah, that's... I mean... I think like Paul Chan was doing some stuff like that, you know, some pretty direct public stuff that just you get. You're like, yep, that makes. But what's cool too is the other work is so different. You know what I mean? Like when it, I don't know what his other work was like, but it becomes almost like it's that's the layering. It's not like each piece is layered. It's like the body of work in general. I think one of the things that really drew me to your work is just there's a lot seems like a lot of different ways, a lot of different angles, a lot of different materials. It's not rote. It's like, okay, this is going to talk about something different in a different way. Mm-hmm. That is what it is. Next up, this is going to talk about something else in a different way, you know, which is refreshing. Yeah. But it sounds like Thanks. that stemmed from way back. You were always not afraid to just say, well, this is what I'm going to do here. You know, not. it's not about just making something look pretty. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been able never been able to do it as much as <laughs> now every once in a while I try. Um So that was I've a light bulb always, moment at Cooper, do you think? Yeah, that was one of them. Did you have some mentors there that really or who anyone else that you really connected with or resonated with or The other the other thing that I think about all the time was um a workshop that Thomas Hirshhorn did um, when I was a sophomore and it was the title of the workshop was energy yes quality no (laughs) and (laughs) that's immediately like what I visualize like that's such a funny not funny but you know what I mean like imagining a workshop by him (laughs) just seems like bedlam (laughs) yeah totally yeah it it blew my mind. I mean, it, it was really, it was really simple. It was basically, essentially, that there are expectations. He was trying to get to a, get us to understand that there's the art world, and then there's everything that's not the art world, and there's ov- overlap between the two. So you can make work that's directed towards the art world that might be of a high quality or archival or follow certain conventions and have the content touch on things about everything that's not the art world. But his argument was that energy is directing your work towards the other and understanding that the art world will overlap with that. Um, Not having to, not to think about quality as like a predicate to the work. Do you believe that? Like that sounds like his work, his yeah, directive. totally. Is that a universal, or is that just good for him? No, that sounds like his work. That sounds like his work for yeah. sure. No, I'm just. Um, I I love. It. I've had that experience a lot with visiting artists where they come in and they're like, "Here's the right way to do things," mm-hmm. and then you're like, "Yeah, that that's the right way for you to do it, and that's what mm-hmm. makes your work so good." But that might not translate to the masses. Totally. Yeah, if everyone was making point. Hirshhorns, holy moly. Could you, <laughs> could you imagine that biennial? Yeah. <laughs> Jason Rhodes would be in it. It would just, yeah, that, 
it's a certain kind of energy and work, but that's what makes that stuff so, you know, uh, compelling. And seeing that again next to something, like put that next to an Agnes Martin, you know? Yeah. It's a nice dynamic. For sure. Well, what were you doing in school? Like what kind of work? Um, I was mostly making things that felt kind of theatrical, like a little bit like, um, a portion of a, of a theater set. Um, I was also using found material, um, to make tableaus, like I would have like furniture arranged in a particular way. Um, yeah, and I was trying to find ways where I could make, make exploring the city part of my work as well. So I, I did some projects where um, I incorporated things I found on the street um, or I collaborated with a person that I met outside of the school yeah. and... Um, yeah. You answered my next question without me even asking it. I was going to say, as someone who never went to school while in New York City, I imagine, I don't know, I've always think to myself, oh my God, like how, I mean, I'm sure I could do it, but I would be distracted by going to see music all the time, I'm sure, or, or whatever, or maybe I wouldn't, but I was going to ask if, like, how the city affected you, but it sounds like you were engaged in it, really. I was trying to be. I definitely wasn't engaged in the art world part. I like, I did go to Chelsea on Thursdays. So back then, that was like more of a ritual, I think. Yeah. You know, to go well, get the free COVID drinks. Yeah. Um. But you know, I remember my friends. A lot of my friends were skateboard kids back then and I, I had never skated and I remember buying my first skateboard when I moved to New York and I would skate everywhere and I would skate like it was a I was on a bike like I would literally not take the train just skate everywhere transportation and yeah and uh, try to yeah experience the city that way and um, I met yeah I met a lot of people along the way and you know how when you're a young artist and you tell someone you're an artist and they're like oh let me see your work and they'll be like oh I want you know I want you to make a poster for my band or I need like a logo or something um, I would experiment with trying to do that but with self-serving intent right. um, like make a thing that kind of use their story uh, as an artwork and I never it, I don't think it ever successfully worked out as an advertisement for somebody but I made cool arts uh, art posters and prints it's almost like it sounds like almost like an experiential portrait mm. it's not based on image or illusion but more about the experience of 
someone or something. Because some yeah. of the work that I've seen of yours that references, or at least this is my perception, references certain events or, or things that it feels almost like this uh, blend of like formal abstraction, like investigation of, of a broken, fractured image of not a specific thing that's happening or event in one moment, but a, a sort of um, like a combining of these elements in a way that is like a, a, a fractured experience that's an abstract image at the end of it. Totally. Is that fair? Yeah, that's... I'm glad you say it that way. That's how I feel. I mean, I, I've always been excited by sculpture's ability to kind of turn a, to slow down a moment, you know, yeah. like I think of like classical sculpture, like Leakawan and his sons as like a moment that you can walk around you know, yeah. and it's dynamic. It feels like it has action, but it's stuck, you know? Right. And I remember, you know, th- going back, I think we were talking about film for a second at the beginning. I remember I had a film theory class and we read this, we read this uh, piece of, this uh, piece by, I think it was Andre Breton, who wrote Death Every Afternoon which was about was a critique of a movie about a bullfight and in this movie they actually kill the bull and it's on camera uh, at the end of the fight and it's it turns into this thing about the ethics of the death being filmed and that it could be played over and over again and like should death be a moment that cannot be repeated you know should all deaths on film be fake right and yeah that always factored into my sculpture too so to me like i always wanted any sculpture that had a face in it or had an expression i wanted there to be some sort of tension as to it being frozen like it being frozen felt should feel sad (laughs) or uh intense you know yeah it heightens the well I mean I guess that's the the whole underpinning of the the hopeful success of a still image is that it you know it's spotlight it's speaking of theater it's putting that spotlight on the specific uh, moment in time you know I always think I mean in my work I'm I love the idea of that frozen moment where the anticipation of something about to happen or just happened but you don't know necessarily and there's a real tension in that quiet moment and stillness but in the anticipation it activates the viewer's mind you know it puts the onus on the viewer to think what is about to happen what just happened or what does this mean you know and that I think is a relationship to asking a viewer to think about something without telling them what to think which I think is so often especially these days, things are usually spelled out, you know, this is what you should think. Or no, you're wrong. This is why, you know. (laughs) And I think that still image or artwork in general can can really, you know, ask a question instead of telling you what to think. Yeah, definitely. 
There's not much of that. I don't think there's a lot of room for that. And that's why a lot of people don't like art. (laughs) (laughs) They like the movie where, you know, you go and it happens to you. You know, you just sit in a chair, you eat your popcorn. You get Mm -hmm. the story told to you. You can buy it if you want, or you can say, yeah, I don't really like it. And then you walk out, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I can understand it being kind of disappointing for some people. And maybe that's why I try to use a lot of different materials in my work. Um, I mean, for myself, it's like the narrative's broken down. There's no happy ending. There's no, there's no, nothing to lead you somewhere, you know? Yeah. And it almost doesn't even give you an opinion, you know, any of the work that I've done where it's an image that might be from pop culture doesn't really give an opinion but there's a lot of material play and in a way that is the narrative too you know there's like humor in you know constructing things in certain ways you know in letting the materials be themselves letting clothing be a stand-in for a person uh using a wedge to hold something up and things like that yeah i you know oh i was gonna say this before but one there is work i think that looks or that resonates with your work in the sense that it there is i mean tapping into what we were talking to earlier about you know, of sort of willingness to use different materials or to for it to not feel programmatic at all. And it's just like each thing can be a world to itself. You know, there, it feels like um, a lot of work like that can be really feel heavy handed or it's almost like I'm trying to be vague or I'm trying to confuse you. But when I, the, your work for me, it, it makes me act, ask that question in a really interesting way like it doesn't feel like put on or you know purposeful you know in the sense of like I'm going to make this really hard to understand or I'm going to make it not clear it just feels like an investigation that feels authentic and but I don't always know what's going on but I like it because it makes me stay in the piece longer I think you know Mm. Mm. I don't know if that's your intent or not but maybe it Yeah, I mean, all I could say is that the pieces that are out there of mine were, you know, real investigations. And for me, until recently, it was really hard for me to work without a deadline because I wasn't thinking about making completed artworks. I was thinking about exploring this thing that I had going and I didn't know how to end it, you know? And it would just sort of, it would end when I had to end it. And um, I think that gave it a lot of energy and was exciting for people because, you know, they weren't used to seeing, you know, a lot of people aren't used to seeing something right. like that. Well, a lot of times also, because even I, I believe you were saying that there's a theatrical element to the work. A lot of times work that taps into that feel can feel like drama or dramatic or, you know, 
kind of like I'm gonna make this look a certain way. It 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 feels. I don't know how to describe it. You know what I mean? More dramatic or something, or like purposefully, you know, dramatic. Whereas I don't think your work really feels that way. You know, I think it is. I think it is dramatic. Um, I think it's oftentimes about threats and moments where a threat is apparent but it's not really there and um, that it used to be kind of like self-portraiture in a sense because it was like about the state of being um, you know a, a multiracial person and like feeling that feeling of feeling like a threat and then knowing you're not one. And, and so there's often, often when, even with like the still life photography that I've done, there's all, you know, I'm always, it's always about, which is there's not a lot of online, but it's always about the things outside of the frame or like, it's almost like a who done it scenario like this is the aftermath of a ritual or uh or an event yeah um and yeah there's definitely drama there definitely no i get like, i i totally feel that i i guess what i'm trying to say is that there it has a feel of drama but it doesn't feel like it's put on like it's 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 almost like you know, there, there's something that can happen that's just dramatic, and then there's something that could be recreated in a dramatic way. You know what I mean? That's trying to heighten it, or it feels like, um, I don't know, purpose, or I don't know, almost like exaggerating it in a way or something. I don't know. I guess the work just feels more organic in the sense that it's, you know, there's a lot... Of, sometimes sculpture feels like, oh, someone made this, and then other times it feels like this just happened. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, it just exists. You know what I mean? And I think there's certain, you know, sculptures of yours that I've seen that just feel like... That just feels like it just happened, you know? Like mm-hmm. it is its own thing, in a way. I know, it's hard to describe. I guess my inadequacies of talking about the work is what draws me to it, is that it's, mm-hmm. it does, it's not boring, cool yeah well I'll tell you even I have trouble talking about it after I've moved on and that's like a flaw of of the way that I work that you know it tends to feel like each piece has its own logic and after a while I kind of start to forget the logic of the previous pieces it's almost like um, you're like all right you guys take it from here i yeah. made you you were i'm present when i make you i've got doing this i've got this idea and it's got the feeling and then you know it, it's funny too because like if i look back at something i made 15 years ago you know i, I know what i was doing but it feels like my relationship to that is so different you know what i mean and i it's i could recap it but i can't get back into the headspace you know 
Yeah. That's just aging, you know, and, and <laughs> moving away from experience, you know, just like talking about childhood. I mean, I have very vivid memories of certain things and other things that I think I have memories of, but I'm, I don't know, maybe it was different. <laughs> yeah, me too. I have a really, really bad memory. I, I, my whole life is just highlights to me. <laughs> like bits and pieces. Yeah. <laughs> um, is Are there musicians or music that you feel like maybe parallels your work a little bit? Or musicians that you feel like, yeah, that's the creative process or that's something that I, you know, maybe it's not your favorite stuff, but you maybe you just feel like it aligns with an aesthetic or with an idea of, of something that you're doing. Yeah. Um, the first things that come to mind are maybe um, a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> uh, not, not actually. That's that's rude of me to say. But um, the first thing that comes to mind is Daniel Behar. Who has, who also goes by Destroyer? Mm-hmm. Um, I used to listen to that a lot in the in the studio. I know that you've brought up a lot of stuff that I don't know in this podcast. Uh, that's surprising. That's surprising because I don't know a lot about music compared to a lot of my friends. What genre but, um, of music is that? I don't really. Or what oof. is it? It sounds like. Um. Thomas Hirshhorn? <laughs> uh, yeah. It sounds like new age um, folk, folky music, like alternative rock folk with some, sometimes with some synthy sounds, like some uh, really repetitive, like Philip Glass like synthy sounds. Nice. And very poetic lyrics. Um. Yeah, I like I like music that's almost like poetry, you know. Yeah. Like I like really really long songs that uh, are epic. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um. I also listen to a lot of um, movie soundtracks. Those lately. are epic. Yeah. Yeah, my son's like, a I film major in high school, and he is all about the soundtrack stuff you know I had to learn that the Mandalorian theme on guitar not that it was hard but I you know I learned that and we would play that and it's a really good soundtrack <laughs> I think I've heard that one and Inception we, we love that movie and Inception's the best one I've never watched the movie but the soundtrack's so good oh really you got to yeah. the soundtrack and not the movie the movie well I don't know I'm not a huge film guy but I really like the movie. I will, I will finally watch it someday soon. <laughs> it's just late. It's it's kind of mind bending. You know, it took me a couple times. But yeah, that soundtrack, right? It is epic. There's something really good about it. Oh, you know what else comes to mind musically? And I think it is. I don't know what you'd call these genres, but this is also something I listened to when I was a teenager, and I still like it now. This band Shushu. XIU, XIU. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like indie rock, right? I guess you could call it that. I mean, it's performative. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I guess I I do like a lot of these. I don't know. I guess I would call them like new age indie rock, maybe. Um, Lucky Dragons. Yeah. Was a big one for me for a little bit. Um. Yeah. Did you go yeah. see a lot of live music when you were in school, like in those, you know, early days? Not so much when I was in school, but a little bit after. Yeah. Um, after Cooper, that same year, I went to Skowhegan. And before I went to Skowhegan, I moved out of my apartment. And I figured I would bum around when I got back and find a spot. And I became really good friends with Maya Hayuk, who was also there at that time. And she let me sleep in her studio at the end of Metropolitan, like by the water. It was called Monster Island, was the name of that building. Mm -hmm. And they would have music events there. Um, And yeah, I remember seeing a few things back then there and at 285 Kent. Yeah. Um, I, re- I really liked Black Dice back then. Um, and Maya, we ended up sharing a studio after that for a while, for like two two or three years. And she had a lot of friends who were musicians yeah. and uh, got to know like a lot of these musicians in Williamsburg that I liked a lot. Yeah, there was some some good energy back then here, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I talked to Hisham and, and Sebastian for that. I mean, you know, that I remember seeing that, you know, going to the Richard Phillips opening with Black Dice Blade. It was pretty epic. Mm. It's pretty loud. <laughs> it's good stuff. Um yeah, there was a lot I mean, I don't need those creative spaces are gone though, right? I think it's Trader Joe's. Yeah. Now. No, they're, they're all gone. Like all, yeah, I think it is. Wait, Richard Phillips had an opening and that Black, Black Dice, Dice played. Yes, played at it or at, at the after party at the opening at Petzl. No way. Yeah. No way. I did not see this. Yep. Wow. Those were the days. <laughs> we used to have. There's a lot more of that, like music, music at openings. You know, or there, there would be that kind of thing going on, which is kind of fun. But yeah, Richard I'd, Phillips bought I'd, a piece at my first solo show. Nice. And uh, that's how I, I met him. So uh, he's great. <laughs> yeah, he's a good dude. Um, he gave me my, my best grad school. I mean, I've known him since when I was a grad student. He came and visited. And, uh, you know, all the visiting artists I had, it was, I don't know, it was a prickly second year there. And uh, I remember just before he came, Laura Owens came, and she was like, yeah, I don't really... What, are you trying to have a show or something? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just trying to make paintings. And she's like, yeah. And then Richard came, and he was just like, hey, man, cool. Just keep going, man. This is great. And I was just so invigorated that he wasn't giving me the business, you know? I don't know. Uh, At that point, I was getting it from all angles. So it was really... He was like a beacon of light there. It was just like, yeah, man, just keep making it keep doing your thing and then I went to Skowhegan and Skowhegan was just like you know it was like a a good friend art club everyone's just like yeah 
awesome. There was like no bad vibes, at least when yeah. I was there. So he was real supportive. So it was a nice counter to uh, grad school. Mm. Did you have a good? Th- what year were you there? Two thousand eleven. Do you have some good faculty that you connected with? Or not faculty, resident artists or whatever? I'm still really great friends with a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it funny? Like, it's, it's a club that just, I mean, our year was, like, just amazing. What year were you there? 99. Oh, wow. So we had John Waters and Tom Friedman and Lorraine O'Grady, Susanna oh, cool. McClellan, Polly Affelbaum. It was just, like... Yeah, it was a good year. I mean, I don't know what the other years were like, but I felt like I got lucky. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, and Tom Friedman and I, we used to, a couple of us would share electronic music. Because back then, it was like in 99, I mean, electronic music was kind of jumping. You know, it was like really hitting its stride, and we would trade stuff. And it was really cool. I, I would have been really excited to have Tom Friedman as faculty. I think he was one of the first artists that got me excited about art when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I remember remember that uh, magazine Modern Painters had a thing about him and I remember reading about when he was in school and he did this piece where he um, threw down a set of pickup sticks and then replicated them in a different pile and I remember as a kid that, that blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, he blew my mind. I, I saw him when I was in grad school. He came to do a lecture for sculpture, and I went over there and watched his visiting artist talking. He talked about how he painted his... He was stuck, and he painted his studio all white. It was just like a white room. And he would bring in one object from home and just stare at it. And then he would get an idea. You know, it was like such a different... I don't know, it was a really great talk, and it was inspiring. And then I got lucky, because when he was a scout, he can... He, I mean, the critiques that I had with him, I, I don't, I can't sort it out. I don't know what was said or what was, it was just a little out there. But I mean, we had a great talk about music and we shared stuff. He's a really interesting guy. So like, what, what are you working on these days? I mean, other than teaching, how's your studio um, life? It's good. It's, it's um, mostly digital right now. I have spent the last like two years making a lot of digital renderings and sculptures based on 3d models nice and now i'm transitioning into making the move and seeing if i can keep them on the screen and um yeah that and basically doing some material exploration where I'm deciding if some images that I want to make are paintings or photography of objects with paint that have been painted. Um, You know, yeah, I guess, you know, it's a tough thing with, with me not, not really having a medium, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of deciding the form right that's going to take because like a lot of it's just like justifying the form the last two years i've made a lot of drawings and prints it's been most of my practice and um 
I could continue doing that, but I want to try to, you know, level it up a little bit um, and consider, like, whether it matters that an object is unique, you know, rather than having it be a print. um, And, yeah, what I can get away with. They're all just images in the end, right? Yeah. It's funny because the grass is always greener for those who, you know, do one kind of thing. Would look at you and be like, oh man, that's so liberating and amazing. Like, you could just move through all this meat. But then the other side of that is it's so hard because it's like, okay, what is the shape? How does this realize? What's the best vehicle for this? You know what I mean? It's almost like, yeah, it's not an easy decision or process, really. Yeah. But it's open, which is probably freeing in a way, you know? It's like, you know what? I, I like, I would imagine during COVID you were able to make it work. You know, someone who's only making Titan epic sculptures probably had a harder time. You know what I mean? Like to be able mm-hmm. to, to be nimble in the way that you're creating images is, is kind of a, a good thing in a situation like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really adaptable. I mean, maybe it's partially because of the number of residencies that I've done. You know, I'm used to working in, in different scenarios and like kind of making the the work given you know the new parameters yeah. I move a lot too I mean I've only been in this studio like four months but this will be a long term one I have a three year lease on it but um yeah I yeah I'm really I'm really used to adapting to the situation but um I'm really craving like a for a form that I can that can fulfill me repeatedly. Yeah. Um and that's what I'm focusing on and I think that it has something to do with photography and you know somehow making, you know, making it work with the 3D modeling that I've done you know, kind of integrating them in the ways that a VFX artist would, but for still images. Um, And so right now for me, really the hurdle is making the decision, like, do I try to work with really high DPI images and, and make them unique by the size? Or is there some hand process that these go through that fulfill that for me? Right. Yeah. That's the hurdle that I'm, I'm dealing with. So it's the challenge, but the excitement of the not knowing, you know? Yeah. And the exploration is part of it, right? That process is part of the, the experience. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Thanks. Um, I really find, I mean, I, I'm really intrigued by the work. It's really interesting stuff. And, you know, it's the, the, maybe the highest compliment I can give it is just, it's, it's so not boring and it's so interesting and it keeps you in there. And, you know, you want to like, that's why I wanted to talk to you. I just want to learn more about it. I appreciate that. But yeah, it was, it was great to meet man. Thanks for taking the time out. Thank you.